Thank you for coming back and joining us this morning as we go through our series in Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 9 today, beginning in verse 18, and we'll go all the way to verse 34. If you want to, just hit the pause button and turn to Matthew chapter 9 and read along with us, and I'll begin in verse 18. Matthew nine eighteen says this, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. If you will just join me in a moment of prayer as we begin to think deeply on this text. Before I explain it, we want to ask for God's help to not only understand what God is saying in this Uh, scripture, but also how to apply it and live it out. So let's just pray together as a church family. God, we know that without you, we are just as blind as these two men were, Father. God, without you, we're just as helpless as this dead girl. So Father, today I ask that you will raise dead hearts. I ask that you will open blind eyes. Father, I pray that you will give us your spirit continually, Father, as Uh, You help us to understand what your word says, Lord. Let your spirit work in us and sanctify us, Father. Let your spirit continue to teach us, Father, how to obey and love you even more. So, God, we just petition you and beg you to help us today. As we come to you for the sake of the gospel, as we come to you for the sake of loving Jesus even more, as we come to you for the sake of your glory. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. During my two-and-a-half-year stint in East Asia, I would spend my Fridays hiking the mountains around the city in which we served. After days of discipling and evangelizing and planting and teaching, my Friday hikes were a time of solitude and quiet and quiet meditation, and they were just a time for me to get away and rejuvenate and rest. And so I'd go up on the mountain and I'd pray, I'd read scripture, and I'd just enjoy the scenery. Now, nestled in the side of these beautiful mountains, one could see several, maybe hundreds, of Buddhistic and Taoistic temples. 
Every once in a while, I'd get a little bit of a, a, uh, a desire to go off on a journey. And so I would, I would decide to go into these temples and look around and engage with local monks or stir up some gospel-centered conversations with local worshipers. But every time I went into these places, my heart sank. One of the bigger temples in that area housed no less than 30 different deities, most of them carved with horrific, monstrous expressions. It was a depressing scene. And adding to the, depressing, the depression of the scene was the, the sight of crippled men, of uh, wounded women, of, of poor children trying to climb these stairs to get to this temple in order to petition these gods for healing. Now to get in, they would first have to buy a ticket because you can't get into the temple without buying a ticket. So they'd buy their ticket, and then once they were in, they'd have to try to figure out which of the deities would be most sympathetic to their plight. Because quite frankly, not all the deities were equally sympathetic or equally loving and merciful. Some of them would completely ignore the poor people and wait for the rich people to come and pray. So they'd have to find whichever deity would be more sympathetic to whatever they were going through. Now once they found that deity, they would kneel before them, burn some incense, and then they would make their offering. Most of the people who prayed uh, in these temples were relatively poor, and so they would bring what they could. They'd bring apples and oranges. Uh, some people would make traditional Asian dishes, some, some uh, dumplings or some mountain noodles, and people even bringing a whole cooked chicken and leaving it there in front of the idol. But the better well-off, those who had more money, were able to take wads of cash and stuff it into the offering boxes. And the reality was that in order for these, these deities to listen to you, you had to give more. The better the offering, the more likely your petition, your prayer request would be answered. The more you gave, the better, the better the gift, the, the more money, the, the better the food was that was cooked, the more likely you would probably be healed from your crippledness or you, you, your, your barrenness would be turned back. That was the idea, at least. I remember watching as these crippled beggars who could not even stand up without crutches, as these parents who had sick children in the hospital, as these women who longed for nothing more than to be able to get pregnant, as they sat there in front of these statues, offering everything they could, giving up everything that they could, praying for restoration, praying for healing, weeping and mourning and crying out and pleading to be made well. And I could not help, every time I went into these places, but think how different this was from the picture of restoration we find in Jesus in his life and ministry. How different this mindset was from the hope of the the forthcoming restoration that we have in Jesus. It's not about what we sacrifice, but about what he sacrificed in order to give us restoration. Now, Matthew presents Jesus' healing as a picture of the gracious renewal he has come to bring. He is not a deity who demands sacrifice before restoring his people, But he is Emmanuel, God with us, who freely offers himself up as a sacrifice for the restoration of fallen humanity. Because Jesus is the great restorer of the fallen world, faith is the only right and appropriate response due to this new life that Jesus has brought. 
due to this new, this new life and this new relationship with God that Jesus has brought to fallen humanity. Now, verse 18 sets the context for the passage at hand. While he was saying these things to them. Now, when you read a phrase like that, while he was saying these things to them, it's worthwhile going back and, seeing, and, and reminding yourself what things he had been saying. It was explicitly during Jesus' conversation with John's disciples that this ruler whose daughter had just died had, had come to ask Jesus to come help him. It was during the conversation in which Jesus was talking about the new wine not being put in old wineskins or the new cloth not being put on an old, uh, an old piece of garment. And in this, Jesus is confronting John's disciples saying, don't look at me or try to uh, mold me into your old covenant expectations, but consider the new that I have brought. Consider this new life that has come. He had come to powerfully bring the new covenant and a restored relationship with God. He could not be fit into their old covenant molds. How appropriate is it that at the moment he's talking about all this newness that he has come to bring, that suddenly this man comes in and asks him to give his daughter new life. What a perfect illustration of what Jesus had come to do. He had come to bring new hearts. He had come to bring a restored relationship with God. He had come even so that one day humanity could dwell in a new creation that mirrored Eden. Now the following healings that we see give a glimpse of this new life that Jesus has come to bring it, it gives us a little bit of a sip of the new wine that he was talking about. With every healing, we hear an echo of Exodus fifteen twenty six: I am the Lord, your healer. And so before them all stood not just another man, not even just their kind of Messiah, you know, this warrior who had come to beat off all of their enemies and restore Israel's political status. No, before them stood God in flesh who had come to make all things new, including them, including their sinful hearts and their sinful minds and their broken relationship. Now, as we look deeper into these healings, I think we should be careful not to read these accounts as if they are an end uh, in and of themselves. Instead, these healings were meant to be a means to an end. It is worth noting that Jesus himself constantly did not want people to get wrapped up in the physical healings that he was doing and miss the spiritual reality of why he had come. Jesus came to do far more than to end their mere physical sufferings, which will indeed happen in due time. But far more important, he came to carry away their sin, to die for them, to substitute himself to become their sacrifice so that they could be restored to God. That's explicitly this reason why Jesus later tells the blind men to not tell anyone what happened to them. He doesn't want people to confuse him with just a miracle worker. He doesn't want people to treat him like, like just a band-aid, right? He's just a, he's just a quick fix whose touch can take away their lameness or, or their deafness or uh, their barrenness. It's, it, he's, he's much more than that. He's the Savior who has come to take away their sin. He wants people to veer away from that false notion that the Messiah had come just to fix all the worldly stuff. He's the Messiah who has come to restore them back to God, their real problem. The real problem 
was being alienated from God. That's what he came to fix. And so as we read about these healings, we should continually ask how these minor restorations give us a glimpse of the greater redemption which Jesus has come to accomplish. Just as healing the paralytic proves the deeper significance of Jesus and his authority to forgive sin, so now each one of these healings presses to see the truth of Jesus, namely the one who has brought the new wine of the kingdom, the one who has brought a new relationship with God. And so Matthew's goal is not to elevate these healings and say, look, look at all these amazing things that Jesus did. No, Matthew's goal is to give us a glimpse of the new life, the new wine that Jesus has come to bring as he welcomes people into the kingdom of God. He is the son of David who does more than just healing sick people or raising dead girls or making blind men to see. He's the one who has come to make spiritually dead people alive. He's the one to open up spiritual blind eyes. So we constantly have to keep that in mind, that these healings point to a deeper redemptive truth about Jesus. As great as the physical healings are, it's the spiritual reality of who Jesus is that's far more important. Now, I think Matthew, in, in all of these, by recording these four healings, gives us a glimpse of the kingdom's restoration. And the first three, the first three healings, really, the, the ruler's daughter, the hemorrhaging woman, and the two blind men, give us this glimpse of the kind of faith that we're to have in Jesus, knowing that he is the one who has come to bring restoration. And then in the fourth healing, the, the healing of the uh, demoniac, who is mute and probably deaf as well, um, highlights the theme of disbelief and rejection. So you have three healings that emphasize the importance of faith and one healing that shows the, the continual rejection of the religious elite, of those who refuse to believe in Jesus. And so we're given two polar opposite responses. People either respond to the restoration, to the new wine that Jesus has, bring, Jesus has brought in himself with faith and trust and dependence, or with rejection and arrogance and obstinance, with disbelief. And so I think as we approach this text, we, we've got to ask ourselves, how do we respond? Do we respond in faith, or do we respond in disbelief? Do we see Jesus the restorer as the one who, in whom we depend on and whom we hope on? Uh, the one who, if only we could have him, then we would be made well spiritually. Or do we reject Jesus, thinking that there's all these other things in life that can bring us restoration? So let's just take a look at the first healing. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now we find out from the other Gospels who this ruler actually was. He was a leader of a synagogue named Jairus. And with the growing opposition against Jesus, we see that Jairus has kind of put himself in a really socially awkward position. I mean, he's, he's setting himself up against the Pharisees and against the scribes by coming to Jesus. And he, he doesn't just come to Jesus, he kneels before Jesus, which shows that he is absolutely desperate for Jesus. He's absolutely desperate in his situation. His daughter has died. It's brought him to his knees before this man named Jesus. And he pleads with him, come, simply touch her. 
Come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. You can hear the confidence in his voice. She will live. Giving this little girl new life provided the perfect illustration of what Jesus had just said. He was not bringing old. He was bringing new wine. So, everyone prepare your new wineskins, your new expectations, your new understandings. Don't put them into the old. This is a whole new thing. He has come to bring a new kingdom, new covenant, new heart, new life, and complete restoration. And he's going to show it here in the healing of this little girl. Now, on the way, Jesus encounters another who desperately sought his healing. It says this, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. That's an important detail that we'll get to here in a minute. Came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, it helps to think sympathetically about this woman had endured for 12 years. According to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, a woman with a discharge was declared ceremonially unclean for all the days that her discharge continued. Not only was she unclean, unclean, but whoever touched her was unclean. Whatever she sat on was unclean. Whatever she laid on was unclean. And so just to, just to paint the picture of this, this woman would have had a very lonely, miserable existence. And topping her, ministry, her, her misery was the fact that in her uncleanness, she couldn't approach God in the temple. She was banned from worship in the temple. She couldn't come to the rituals or to the feasts. She couldn't watch the sacrifices. And so, once again, she's kind of like that leper that we read about in Matthew 8. She's socially alienated and isolated from people, and she's separated from God. And so she's a perfect illustration of, of, of what... Uh, Jesus has come to do in restoration. She is separated off from everybody else. Imagine, just by way of analogy, imagine having COVID-19 for 12 years. For 12 years, you are told to self-quarantine in your home. For 12 years, everything you touch is deemed contaminated and has to be washed off before anybody can touch it. For 12 years, you're unable to hug or touch your loved ones. If this woman had grandkids, she was unable to play with them. If she had a husband, she was not allowed to be intimate with him. If she had kids, she wasn't allowed to hold them. Just for 12 years, because anyone she touched, anyone who touched her was automatically unclean. She probably had to live alone. In other Gospels, we, found out, we find out she spent a ton of money trying to get better, paying doctors to figure out what was wrong. And this is just a small picture of what she would have gone through. Now, it's not difficult to sense this woman's struggle. She felt as if she needed to come up behind Jesus. Why is that detail important? Now, in other Gospels, we find out that this woman was trembling. She was fearful. She was, she was thinking secretly, if only I can come up behind him and touch him. Why, why would she need to think that way? Why would she... Need to, need to think, I need to come up behind him and secretly touch him. I, I can't let anybody know. Well, we see in this woman a real struggle of faith. 
She knows that Jesus is the one who can heal her. She knows that she is dependent on him and his touch or her touching him in order to be healed. So she has a faith, but it is a shaky faith. She's coming up behind him because she's worried about what everyone else might say or what Jesus might say. What happens if people realize that this unclean woman is rushing toward the Messiah? What if Jesus turns around and condemns her? Don't touch me, woman, you're unclean. What if other people shame her for spreading her uncleanness? And yet, even with all these fears and her secrecy, and maybe even a little bit of her superstition, thinking, I, I got to touch this fr- the fringes of his garment, this woman still trusted that it was Jesus who could heal her. It was Jesus who could make her well. Now, Jesus turned and, and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well, or literally, your faith has saved you. And instantly, the woman was made well. I think it's important to see that throughout all of these healings in Matthew 9, Jesus never comments on how much or how little someone has faith in Matthew 9. He doesn't doesn't condemn this woman. Why didn't you just come to me? Why did you have to come behind me? Why did you think you had to touch the garments? If you'd have asked me, I'd have, I'd have healed you just outright. He doesn't shame this woman. He doesn't, he doesn't break a broken reed. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick of this woman's faith. But he gives her hope and he gives her restoration. Even though her faith wasn't perfect, it was still faith. Now, I I personally have been ministered by this tender view of my Savior. I mean, this runs counter to so many self-proclaiming faith healers out there or self-proclaiming prosperity gospel preachers out there who argue that if you have a great faith, then you can be healed and you can be restored. The bigger your faith, the more God will answer your prayers. And if God doesn't answer your prayers, it must be because you don't believe in Him enough. Well, this runs directly counter from that. And I, I, I've seen people emotionally and spiritually brutalized by that kind of teaching. By people who say things, if you only had more faith, your cancer would go away. Or have more faith and your sick child will get better. And already beaten up people walk away beating themselves up more because they can't seem to have enough faith. And yet that's not the picture that we see with this little woman here. Restoration for this woman was not dependent on the size or perfection of her faith, but on the object of her faith. It wasn't dependent on how great her faith was. I mean, she, she is fearful. She is trembling. She tries to secretly come to Jesus without anyone knowing. And yet it's the fact that she believed and trusted in Jesus that made her well. Twelve years of alienation and separation were instantaneously at an end when Jesus walked by. In the same way, I just want to tell you as our listeners, it is not the size of your faith that brings you new life. It's not the size of your faith that guarantees your restoration. It's the object of your faith. It's Jesus Christ himself and Jesus alone. You might be of someone who has small faith today and you 
might be someone who has a struggling faith and you look at the world around you and you just you struggle to see how is restoration going to come my friends even with your small faith you will have restoration because you have faith not in, in, in not in grand surplus supply supply or anything like that not because it's a huge faith and a and a, and a massively overabundant faith but because of who you believe in who you trust who you hope in that is your hope Your hope is not in how big your faith is. Your hope is in who you have faith in, Jesus Christ. So we see this woman comes and she has a hope. She has faith in Jesus and that's what makes her, well, that's what saves her. After this brief interaction, Jesus continues on to the ruler's house where they find flute players and mourners already making a great commotion. Now, back then, if you were poor, you had to have at least two flute players, and you had to have one professional mourner. And this is not our quiet little funerals that we, we have here in our Western society. Now, these are loud events, commotions, people wailing at the top of their lungs. And so you can only imagine what Jesus is walking up to as this ruler of the synagogue has probably several mourners around his house and flute players. And I just could hear Jesus clear his throat. <clears throat> Go away. What? This is a time for sadness. The girl's died. Here's what he says. Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And the people laughed at him. Now, we might shame them for laughing because, I mean, come on, don't laugh at the Savior. Don't laugh at the Messiah. But it's understandable. Imagine anyone walking up to a funeral uh, to, in, in the funeral and just saying, hey, everyone, I want you to stop your mourning. This person's not dead. They're only sleeping. That's laughable. That's ludicrous. Anyone else claiming to say that would be absolutely delusional. But this was Jesus. This was Jesus. He's the authoritative son of David. It wasn't that he was lying. It wasn't that he, he thought maybe she's in a coma. He, maybe he's got medical, better better medical knowledge than they do, and he knows she's really just in a deep coma. She's not dead. It's none of that. The girl really was dead. So why would he talk about her as if she was sleeping? Well, for him, as the son of David who had all authority in heaven and on earth, raising a girl from the dead was as easy as waking her up from a nap. Raising her up from the dead was as easy as waking her up from sleep. As God in flesh, Jesus had the power and the authority to raise the dead. In his presence, not even death is permanent. It is not an unchangeable reality. You would think, it's too late, Jesus. You can't heal her. She's dead. Jesus says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And then he goes into the house after sending the crowds away, sending the mourners away. He takes the girl by the hand and he raises her up. Such a tender sight of Jesus. Takes this 12-year-old girl and raises her by the hand. And she lives. Obviously, such an event could not remain contained. And the news of what had happened spread throughout the district. And as I mentioned before, I think these two accounts are meant to just give, you, give, give us a foretaste of the kind of new wine that Jesus has brought. This is sweet. This is awesome. This is joyful. This is overabundant grace, grace of God. It gives us a glimpse of what Jesus had come to do for us in order to make us well. It would be through his sacrifice that unclean people like us would become clean. 
It'd be through his death and through his resurrection that dead people like us would be raised to walk in a new life. He is the gentle shepherd who has come to heal his sheep. Now from there, two blind men sought him out. We're not told how they found him. We're not told how they came across him. But they've apparently heard enough about Jesus to make them really, uh, to make them understand that they must come to him for healing. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now what sticks out immediately to the careful reader is that though these men are blind, they seem to see Jesus far better than anyone else thus far. They recognize him as the Davidic king, the son of David, through whose mercy, through whose steadfast love that they can receive sight. And he enters, their house, enters the house as well. It says, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now here again, we have an affirmation of their simple faith. Jesus didn't ask them, how much do you believe I can do this? He didn't ask them, do you doubt at all that I can do this? He simply says, do you believe that I am able to do this? He's not testing the size of their faith. He's testing the object of their faith. Do they believe that he as the Davidic king, as the son of David, can he do what they're asking him to do? Can he do what they, what they have petitioned him to do? And then they answered him, yes, Lord. And Jesus healed them according to their faith. Now the phrase, according to their faith, has often been misapplied to mean that Jesus will only answer our, our requests in proportion to the size of our faith. However, it does not mean that if these blind men had a weak faith, then they would only have received sight in one eye. Suppose they have a partial faith or half of a faith, then maybe they would only receive sight in one eye. Well, that's not at all what it means. It means that because they believed that Jesus could do it, that he had the authority and the power to heal them, their eyes were opened. Again, it's not, it's not the size of their faith that takes center stage. It's the object of their faith. It is explicitly because they had faith in Jesus that they were healed. Now, in presenting these four characters, the woman, the ruler, the blind men, Matthew demonstrates that the only appropriate response to the son of David, the king, is a simple faith that hopes in him. It is a faith that comes to him in trust and dependence. Just as the ruler hoped in Jesus to give his daughter new life, just as the hemorrhaging woman hoped in Jesus to stop her bleeding, and just as these two blind men hoped in Jesus to give them sight, we now must hope in Jesus to bring us restoration. My friends, it's all about the object of our faith. Hope in Christ. Hope in Jesus. The world's suffering will not end through political progress or through medical innovations, or through economic advancement. Humans will never find the cure to death. We might find a, a vaccine for COVID-19, but we will never find a vaccine that staves off death. 
New life in a new world that has been restored from its fall can only be attained in Christ. He alone can make all things new. And these people with their simple faith model the kind of hope we are to have in Jesus. When you speak with your friends and your family this week, when you speak with your neighbors about what you hope for this week, will you speak as if you're, you, you hope in lesser things? Well, I hope our economy can pick up. Or I hope my career can continue on unhindered. I hope they pick the right president. I hope in the powers of state to figure out what's going on, and so on and so on. We, we, tend, to, we tend to hope in lots of different things. Or will we faithfully give a reason for the hope that is in us? Not the hope that's outside of us. Not the hope that's around us in this world. But the hope that is in us. The hope of Christ. As those who hope in Christ, we should speak in such a way that expresses that all of our hopes in life, in death, and after death, and in new life, that all of our hopes are in the King and not in anything of this world. Now, the final section of this text breaks away from the theme of faith. We so far have had a a ruler of the synagogue who's come to Jesus in confidence and in dependence saying, touch her and she will live. We have a bleeding, hemorrhaging woman who has been bleeding for 12 years who comes in absolute confidence knowing that if she simply touches his garment, then she'll be made well. We have two blind men who come and believe that Jesus can do this. Well, now suddenly we shift gears and we're where instead of having a theme of faith, we have a theme of disbelief. Specifically, the disbelief of the Pharisees. Verses 32 through 34 says this, As they were going away, behold, a a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now, Jesus' authority to cast out demons was meant to be a display that he was the conquering king. He is able to drive out and expel, to clean out the land, and to push out all the unclean spirits that were there. It was meant to display him as the king who had come to set the captives free. And this man who was brought to Jesus, he was oppressed, he wasn't able to speak, uh, the, the word for mute can mean deaf and mute, so he's, he's most likely a mixture of that. And it was not until Jesus explicitly drove out the demon that the man's able to now speak. And the crowds who witnessed all this, they marveled. They recognized that something totally new had come into their midst. Something completely new had come. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. They recognized that new wine had come. Now, did they totally understand the significance of it? Probably not. But they recognized that something new had happened. Something new was in their midst. But instead of responding in faith, the Pharisees responded in absolute rejection. And it foreshadows the kind of rejection that will continue throughout Matthew's narrative. Their accusation could not be more serious and more ludicrous. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. They viewed Jesus, who had divine power, as someone who was in league with the demonic. 
Rather than seeing the beauty of Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, where Jesus opens the blind eyes and he allows mute people to speak, instead of seeing how beautiful and amazing it was that Isaiah 35 was happening right before their very eyes, they accuse him of being in league with the king of demons, with the prince of demons. They turn away in disgust. But I think in this, Matthew's showing yet another way of, the, uh, of, of how the great reversal works. If you recall, in, earlier in our series in Matthew, we talked about the great reversal in which the humble are exalted and those who are self-exalting are humbled. Here, the religious elite, they miss out on the new wine. They, they're not able to get that sweet foretaste and enjoy the new wine that Jesus has come to bring. Instead, it's ruler, the, the dependent and weak ruler of the synagogue. It's the, the woman who with her shaky faith comes to Jesus and she gets a sip of the new wine. It's two blind beggars, two blind men that get to come and drink deeply of the sweet wine of the kingdom. But the relig- religious elite miss out. To them it's not sweet new wine of the kingdom, it's sour grapes. Now my friends, I think there's a subtle warning in this against the pride of disbelief, against the arrogance of disbelief. The only right response to Jesus and the new wine of his kingdom is faith, dependence, trust in him. Matthew calls this explicitly to a simple, confident dependence in Jesus, knowing that in him the dead will live. In him, the blind will see. So it's worth asking. And what or in whom do we place our trust? How do we respond to the new kingdom with disbelief? Maybe it's our career. Maybe we're, we're saying things like, if only I could reach that promotion, all would be well. Maybe it's our political party. If only my candidate would be voted in, then everything will be all right. Maybe it's our intellect. If I could only find a way out of this problem and solve my way out of this, then I will be okay. How different this is from the woman who says, if only I could touch his garment, then I will be well. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't come with your pride in thinking that you don't need this Savior who has brought new wine. You don't need this Messiah who raises dead girls to life and who casts out demons and who makes the blind to see. Don't be pharisaical in that way, but be dependent like the woman who comes in simple faith. Matthew offers a hope that is greater than anything else you can hope in. He calls you to the one that can really, truly sustain you and satisfy you. So let us not then reject this Savior like the Pharisees did. Now the whole irony of it is, is the more that they reject him, the closer they get to the cross. Their rejection will continue to grow. Their oppression of him will continue to grow. They will hate him. They will despise him. And eventually they will call for his crucifixion and he will die on the cross because of the rejection of the priest and and of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious elite. He'll, He'll carry his his uh, executional, his, his tool of his own execution. He will carry a cross of Golgotha. He'll be nailed to it and he will bleed and he will suffer and die and he will be buried in the tomb for three days. 
Now, the irony of all that is the more they reject him, the more they oppose him, and the more that leads to the cross, the more the restoration comes through him. Through him. On the cross, Jesus was rejected and mocked. He was disbelieved. But it was through the cross that Jesus won our renewal. He died, he buried, and he rose again, giving us the clearest picture of the new life, the new wine that he had come to bring. This was new. Not even death itself could hold the Savior, and therefore death itself cannot hold us. This is the new wine, so drink deeply of it and be satisfied with it. Be sustained by it. Now, I know the faces and the people who are watching this video. I I can imagine some of our own church members who have been here, and I, I know that there are people who are watching this, who have gone through indescribable struggles and suffering. Some of you who are watching this have dealt with chronic illness for years. Some of you have drug addicted loved ones. Some of you have sick or wounded children. Children who can't even get up out of bed. Some of you have hurting family members. Some of you are facing unemployment. Some of you are waking up every morning to an empty bed because you have lost your spouse. So let me just ask, when we deal with a passage in healing, how does this passage apply to you? I know, just being a pastor, I know there are some of you that have spent days and years and maybe even decades praying for God to move and extend his healing hand in the way that we read of in Matthew 9. If only, he would, if only you would touch him, that he would be made well. If only you touch my daughter, and then she'll raise up out of bed. And, and some of you have, have been brought to the point of despair at some points. You've beat yourself up because you feel like you just can't have enough faith. So what do we do when it seems like Jesus doesn't always work for us in the way he worked for the, for the woman, or for the ruler's daughter, or for these blind men. What do we do when we are faced with suffering that doesn't end like that? I know that sections of text like this one sometimes have the tendency to leave people who suffer wondering why Jesus has not acted in the same way. Well, to those of you who would be in that boat, be in that category of suffering, I just want to begin by, by addressing a very simple truth. Jesus is a gentle and kind Savior. He does not break a bruised reed, and He doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick. He, won't, he didn't shame the woman who fearfully, trembling, came up behind Him to touch His garment, and He doesn't shame you for your struggling faith. Jesus is not browbeating you because you don't have enough faith. It's never about the size of your faith. It's about the object. He's the one who nurses and fans into flame weak and smoldering faith. So before even addressing the suffering that you're going through, I just want to remind you of the good and gracious Savior that you have. You do not have to approach him like the people in East Asia approach, trying to buy their saviors to win their, their healing and their restoration, trying to sacrifice enough so that the gods would hear them. That's not the savior that you have. You have a savior who is gentle. You have a savior who is near you. You have a savior who loves you. You have a savior who hears 
every prayer, who hears every groan, who hears every, every night that you mourn. He sees every tear. So just bask in the compassion of Christ toward you who suffer. Now second, it's important to remember that what Jesus has come to do spiritually for us is far more urgent than simply relieving us of our physical pain or our our physical losses. Physical pain can be done away with at some point. But Jesus has come to do away with the true catastrophe, the real calamity. The real calamity isn't that we face COVID-19. The real calamity isn't that thousands of people are dying. The real calamity isn't that cancer is still an issue. The real catastrophe isn't that we have trauma and, and incredibly painful situations and diseases and Wars and famines. That's not the true calamity. The true calamity is that people are alienated from God because of sin. God being a holy and just God cannot be in league with and in relationship with sinful uh, rebellion against him. He's too holy for that. But as it is, Jesus has come. And he's healed the disease of sin by his own death and by his own resurrection Jesus has come to do the far more urgent thing, to save us from the far more dangerous cancer that we have. A healed body without a healed heart is no healing at all. If Jesus just simply went around the world raising up dead people, opening up blind eyes and doing nothing more, that's not good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to heal our spiritual catastrophe, the chasm that spans that, that, that we cannot span without him. The chasm between God and man that is insurmountable, that, that, that exists because of our own rebellion and sin. Jesus has come to end that. And I know for myself, in times of suffering, in times of hardship, sometimes just thinking about the fact that my greatest calamity is over gives me hope. I think of the 18th century English pastor, Charles Simeon, who dealt with incredible persecution and suffering in his time as a pastor. And he was one time asked by one of his students, how does he remain so patient and calm? How did, how did he endure so many years of suffering? Well, here's what Charles Simeon said. He said, when I'm getting through a hedge or a thorn bush, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. So my friends, you may be suffering now, but your greatest suffering is over. Your separation from God is done. The more dangerous problem has been put to an end. And so now we can face cancers and COVID and economic loss and death and every form of hardship because Jesus, our King, has reconciled us to God. He solved the bigger problem. And now we can now trust that because we have tasted the new wine and salvation that we will taste this wine permanently. As Amos 
foretells. The wine will drip from the mountains when Jesus comes to restore all things. And that leads me to my final point. Our greatest calamity is over now, but Jesus will complete what he began to do. He will finish the work of restoration. The new age has broken into the now, and now we're just waiting for it to be finally realized. We live in this now and not yet reality of restoration. We have been restored to God now. We have new life now. We have a new heart now. We have eternal life now. And yet there's a day coming when physical death, when cancers, when pain, when suffering, when all tears will be wiped away. Jesus promises that he will give us restoration. We don't have to climb stairs to a temple. We don't have to do anything else. It is finished. The restoration has come in Jesus and it will be fully realized one day when Christ returns. Now, As difficult as our current sufferings may be, Scripture tells us in Romans 8.18 that those sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, my friends, I just want to encourage you, your current hardship, as great and heavy as it is, is surpassed by a far greater and heavier and amazing glory that is to come. And all this we can hold on to, all this we can cling to, And it is certain because he who is on the throne, he who sent his son to die for you, he who raised his son from the dead, that God that we serve, he is making all things new. And in Christ, he hands us the cup of the new wine of the kingdom and he tells us to drink deeply in faith. Let me pray for us. And we'll end our time together. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the truth that you have given us. God, we thank you for the new wine that has come in Christ. And I pray for those who are listening, who have suffered, who have endured hardship of many different kinds, Father. I pray for your peace over them now. And I pray, Lord, that they will respond just by coming to Christ constantly in faith and in trust, knowing that it's not the size of their faith, or the amount of their faith, the strength or weakness of their faith, it's the object of their faith. And he will accomplish all that he has promised he will do. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, if you don't know Jesus, we would simply ask you to contact us, reach out to us, call us at the church phone, or or send us an email. We would love to explain the gospel to you more, so that you too can have this great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God bless.